The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello. In 1842, Virginia Clem Poe, the 19-year-old cousin and wife of Edgar Allan Poe, burst a blood vessel in her throat while singing. Later, Poe was to say of that period, quote, Her life was despaired of. I took leave of her forever and underwent all the agonies of her death. She recovered partially, and again I hoped. At the end of a year, the vessel broke again, then again, again, Again and even once again, I became insane with long intervals of horrible sanity. During these fits of absolute unconsciousness, I drank, God only knows how often or how much. End quote. During this period of anguish, Poe, desperate for money, kept writing and turned out some of his greatest masterpieces, including The Mystery of Marie Roget. The Pit and the Pendulum, The Telltale Heart, The Gold Bug, and The Black Cat, a hair-raising story about a man driven to extremes and beyond. We'll have that shocking story, The Black Cat, along with some other Povian news today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, Edgar Allan Poe. We are turning over our Thursday theme shows to him this month, giving him full reign for the next few weeks. Now, if Poe only had one card up his sleeve, we might wonder if five Thursdays would be too many, but his mind was so nimble, his life so mysterious and fascinating, and his output so varied that I think will be just fine. Besides, I love October. October makes me think of Poe, and he is just plain fun. I don't ordinarily like shocking things or scary things. I don't seek out horror movies or haunted houses or graveyards. But I do like a little Edgar Allan Poe. I like his essays. I like his take on things. I like his pugnacious relationship with life. So, let's hear a little about that life, since today is our first day in our Poe Month. But before we do that, let's hear a few listener emails. Subject, Joyce Carol Oates, episode 6 of July. Hi, Jack. A quick note to say, I am so sorry that you got that awful email from Jane. You articulated your feelings about it so well, even when you could have done otherwise. You put yourself out there. 
talk about things we love, and in such a wonderful manner. You are a respite from the everyday world without literature, and so many people are grateful for that. I have learned a lot, but mostly I just enjoy your calming voice and hearing stories I know and don't know. Unlike Jane, you know literature is inclusive. Thankfully, whilst her type is putting people off with their arrogance, we have you to turn people on to this wonderful subject. If it hadn't been for such snobby pretensions, I might have studied it formally. I like to think of your young listeners, I'm 40, who may be encouraged to head to uni or college thanks to you. I rarely email people I don't know, but I thought how I would have felt to receive that email, and I would never be as brave or capable to do such a fine show as yours. And whilst I didn't want to remind you of it, too late now, I wanted to say thank you, and you are appreciated. You have such a great approach to your subject. Please don't ever change. Okay, now I can listen to the rest of the episode without anger. JCO and Dylan Bliss. From Not-So-Sunny England, take care. Andy. Hmm, Andy. I am so thankful for your email, and I am so sorry that you had to hear that little rant about Jane and her email. (laughs) I'm over it now. I'm glad to hear that you were on my side on that one. Sometimes emails just get under the skin. Not so much because the criticism is valid, but because the emailer is so thoughtless. I have moved on, but the rant still stays out there for you to hear. I got an email not long ago from a friend of the show, or a friend of Jack, let's say, who's been in touch with me since before I started podcasting, back when I was writing a blog, and she said, I remember when you were talking about Madam Slushpile, and I had completely forgotten about that, but her email brought it all back. There was a reviewer who shall remain nameless, who wrote about how awful NaNoWriMo is. For those who don't know, NaNoWriMo is a, a celebration of sorts, a month where everyone writes a novel, right? Write a novel in one month, in November. Support group for everybody to get that novel done. And her take on it, this reviewer's take on it, was something like, see, this is the problem. Everyone thinks they're a novelist, and they're not. Novels are hard work, And only serious novelists should write them, and blah, and blah, and blah. And I wasn't myself a nano-rimower. I didn't have a dog in that fight. But I just thought, how snobby can you be, book reviewer? How about this? How about someone takes a month, writes a novel, and then thinks, Wow, Wuthering Heights is such an achievement. Or, I love Toni Morrison even more now now that I know how hard it is to write a good novel. Or, Anna Karenina, hats off to you, Mr. Tolstoy. Would Shakespeare have been better off had he been the only one writing plays? Of course not. He thrived because his fellow Elizabethans were writing plays and going to plays and performing plays and enjoying plays. And it helps that the Queen herself tried her hand at poetry and Courtiers, too, and all kinds of non-professionals. If you asked me if I thought a hundred people in the country should write a novel, or a hundred million, I'd say a hundred million in a heartbeat. First of all, guess what writers do? They buy books. They want to see how it's done. Secondly, there's absolutely nothing wrong about those hundred million people. Those those hundred million people writing novels... There's nothing about that that's going to block the 100 people 
from writing their novels too. The cream rises to the top, but if you have no milk, you have no cream. And if you have a million gallons of milk, you'll get a lot more cream. Think of the cream, Madam Slushpile. So where was I? Yes, I don't address critics much because usually it comes across as petty and thin-skinned and it gives a voice to people who frankly haven't earned it. Critics are welcome to start their own podcast and earn a seat at the table of literature podcasting. It might not be as easy as it sometimes seems, but no one is stopping them. And I do have the general rule. I have an opinion. I'm entitled to it. You're welcome to have an opinion about my opinion or not. You're entitled to that. You're That's your freedom, but I'm not obligated to have an opinion about your opinion. All those emails I get where people say, yes, but what about such and such? Or what about so-and-so? You said X and I disagree. I I do my best to respond and be polite. And sometimes I'm genuinely interested and engaged. But if you have strong opinions and you want me to echo them, or you want me to stop podcasting because you know more than I do, well, I don't know what to tell you. That's not how this works. You can start your own show. Okay. Andy, thank you for the email and the words of support. See, Andy gets it. Those snobby pretensions. Yes, those are the worst thing about literature. As if there are big, high gates between readers and this land of literature. When, for God's sake, literature is about language, which everyone has access to, and story, which everyone loves. Stories are how we organize the world. They're human. They are the way we talk to each other. The myths that we put in place to help us be part of a community and part of a tradition. And you know what? Some people think myths are all about, like, well, the, the how the sun was created, and here's this god living in the ocean, and the there's that God who blows and that's the wind and all that. That's not myths. That's not, Well, that is myths, but that's not the myths I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that we have a community. That itself is a myth. How about a corporation? That's not a real thing. It's a shared myth. We decide that these things, that we can have things like a company, like an organization, like a political party, like a other forms of uniting together. Those are myths too. Those stitch us together. It's the fabric that keeps us from spinning off the edge of the earth. Help us be part of a community and part of a tradition. Those are myths. Those are myths when we talk about our tradition. Stories make us human. Stories help us survive. So someone telling others that they're not part of that. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's the problem. You think you're part of it and you're not. Good riddance. That's what I say. We don't need you around this joint. Okay. Let's take our break. Hear one more email and then set up our story for today. The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Subject fan mail for Jack of History of Literature from a 17-year-old. Here is the deal, Jack. I love books. Ever since this year in quarantine, I have read so many books. This year, I am almost at 60 books, and I'm not bragging. I just want to tell you how many how books are my passion. This year, I've really jumped deep into books, and I like to read challenging and hard books. Today, I listened to the podcast on the Brothers Karamazov which is my favorite book, and loved it, and loved how it wasn't data on the book, but more of a heart-to-heart born from it. This is why I want to thank you kindly. As most or all of my friends really don't read or like reading as much, I don't have someone to hang out with and talk about literature. But in your podcast, I have found that which is priceless. Within the podcast, I have found not a distraction for commuting or cooking, but a friend a wise and insightful friend that is a pleasure to listen to. Thank you very much, and I hope you don't stop anytime soon this lovely idea that you materialized into a podcast. From Columbia, Nicholas. Oh, Nicholas, thank you so much for your email, for letting me know I have a friend down there in Columbia. I agree. We need to hang together during these times of quarantine. I love hearing the stories about the immersion in literature. I love hearing that your favorite book is The Brothers Karamazov. And of course, I love hearing that you're cooking and commuting and that the podcast is a good companion during all of that. Or maybe what you were saying is that you're not, you're not cooking and commuting. Anyway, I'm glad that you think of me as a friend. Best of luck to you. And I hope you continue to enjoy the show. So, 
Edgar Allan Poe. There's really no one else like him, I don't think. He's a tough person to find a comparison for when you consider not just his tales of horror, but his pioneering work in a number of genres, including detective fiction, science fiction. When you consider his poetry, his criticism, and on and on, he was maybe not the greatest at anything that we truly value. I wouldn't call him a Chekhov or a Kafka. I wouldn't call him a Tolstoy or anything like that. But he was very good, smart as a whip, and just an endlessly fascinating and tormented creature. Baltimore has claimed Poe for themselves, and there's some justification for that. But the truth is that he lived all over the place. He was born in Boston in 1809. He died in Baltimore 40 years later. And in between, he lived in Philadelphia, New York, Richmond. Uh, That's Richmond, Virginia. He lived in Scotland, England, a few other places too. His parents were actors. Let's back up a little bit. His grandfather, David Poe Sr., was Irish, an immigrant who arrived... In America, around 1750, his father was David Poe Jr., an actor, who married Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins, an English-born actress. The two were performing King Lear around the time that Poe was born, and Edgar might have come from that. Poe had an older brother, William, and a younger sister named Rosalie. The father left the family when Poe was one, and his mother died of tuberculosis when Poe was two. He was taken into the Allen family, who renamed him Edgar Allen Poe, even though they never officially adopted him. The Allens were thus a lifeline, and yet they were a source of antagonism for Poe. John Allen, the father, was a merchant who lived in Richmond, Virginia, who dealt in cloth, wheat, tombstones, and tobacco, and he was in the slave trade, too. He was a strange foster father. At times he spoiled Poe, and at times he disciplined him with what seems like way too much harshness. When Poe was six, the Allens sailed with him to the United Kingdom, where he went to school in Scotland for a while in Allen's hometown, he was Scottish, before moving to London and attending a boarding school there for a few years. By age 11, young Edgar and the family were back in Richmond, and John Allen inherited a fortune from a landowning uncle who passed away. It made him a multimillionaire in today's dollars. He bought a big house, and Poe was on his way to a university education. He was supposed to go to the University of Virginia at age 17, where the plan was he would study ancient and modern languages. Instead, he didn't get very far. He went there, but he didn't get very far. He started gambling, and he ran up debts. He claimed that Alan didn't give him enough money for classes and textbooks and so on, but Alan was sending him money and clothes, and it seems likely that Poe was wasting it. Poe had demons, even then. He hated being reliant on Alan. He got upset when a sweetheart of his married another man, and he ended up moving to Boston, where he started writing for a newspaper, making some cash that way, but he could never outrun his debts. Finally, somewhat desperately, he enlisted in the army, claiming to be four years older than he was, signed up for a five-year commitment. He published his first book around this time, a collection of poems. Fifty copies were printed, and the book got zero attention. It doesn't have his name on it. It just says it's by a Bostonian. Today, there are something like 12 known copies of this book. If you can find one, hang on to it. It's one of the rarest books 
in American literature. The last time a copy was sold was about 10 years ago, and it went for over $600,000. Years after publication, Poe reprinted some of the poems and claimed that the book had been suppressed, trying to juice up interest in his poems as if he were the victim of some kind of conspiracy, a scandal. But the truth was that the poems just weren't that noteworthy. Poe even wrote an introduction apologizing for their lack of merit and claiming that he wrote them all before he was 14, which scholars mostly doubt. Poe didn't like the army much. After two years, he tried to get out of his five-year commitment. His commanding officer agreed to let him go, but only if Poe reconciled with Alan. Poe had told him, I'm actually the foster son of a wealthy man in Virginia. And his commanding officer said, well, if you get back with him, I'll let you go. Poe wrote him a letter, and if you find someone to take your place. Poe wrote Alan a letter, but Alan ignored him. And finally, Poe went to see him and arrived the day after his foster mother was buried. It's not clear whether Alan even told Poe about Poe's foster mother's illness and death. Poe got there late. Too late for the funeral, too late for the burial. Alan agreed at that point to support Poe's discharge as long as Poe entered the military academy at West Point, which got Poe out of the army, and he was on his way to West Point, but he stopped off in Baltimore, where he stayed with his aunt, Maria Clem, who had a daughter named Virginia, who was quite young at the time, Poe's first cousin. Poe published his second book of poems at this point in Baltimore, and he got what he later called the very first words of encouragement I ever remember to have heard in a review of his poetry by a, an influential critic. Finally, he felt like he could do something as a writer, but now he had to go to West Point. It was part of the deal. Alan, his foster father, got remarried, then Poe fought with him, and finally, Alan disowned Poe. Poe got court-martialed on purpose. That was his way of getting out of West Point. He pleaded not guilty, knowing that he would be found guilty. He hadn't been going to class or formations. He hadn't been doing anything he was supposed to do at West Point. So he pleaded not guilty, and he knew they would kick him out. Now he was out. Out of the Army, out of the Military Academy. But he was broke. All he had was this idea that he could be a writer. He went to New York. He's still only 22 at this point, And he put out a third book of poems, financed by his fellow cadets. A bunch of them gave him 75 cents each to help fund the publication. He had been writing poems and verse about uh, superior officers. And his fellow cadets enjoyed them. And they gave him a bit of money to help fund the publication of this third work. Meanwhile, more people around Poe died. His older brother died of alcoholism. Poe made the switch from poetry to prose, and he started selling some stories, including one, uh, sorry, including one called MS, Found in a Bottle, which got him off to an okay start. He returned to Baltimore, where he got a certificate to marry his cousin Virginia. He was 26 now and she was only 13. They were married for 11 years until she died. Let's jump ahead now with his life. We'll pick up the rest of his writing career in later episodes. For now, let's focus on today's story, The Black Cat. 
Poe had been bouncing around, becoming an assistant editor, writing poems, book reviews, critiques, and stories, making a name for himself, increasing circulation at the places he worked for. His wife got ill. She had consumption, the same illness that had killed Poe's mother, and Poe began to drink, and he was a terrible drinker. One drink, and he became wildly erratic, and he resented it, and yet he couldn't stop. That's the sadness in Poe, the way the alcohol and other demons tormented him, and yet he had this brain that he couldn't turn off, and his mind fluctuated between cold radiocination and dark speculative visions. His stories were gloomy, he liked the gloom, he reveled in it, and he scraped together money in a tough world. It was not easy to be an American writer living solely off the earnings of your pen. With all of London sending stories across the ocean and American publishers who didn't honor the copyright were free to print them at will. Those were cheap. So where was he in 1843 when he wrote The Black Cat? He was 34 years old, successful but broke, struggling with alcoholism, which made him miss appointments and so on, but still a very successful writer. His mother had died young, and his foster mother and his brother, and now his young wife had the signs of it too. She was not even 20, and yet when she sang, she was coughing up blood. He felt like she was doomed. He must have felt like they all were. And he had developed an idea that everyone has in them a perverseness. Later, he expanded on this uh, on this idea in a story called The Imp of the Perverse, in which a narrator describes his penchant for self-destructive impulses, doing things merely because one feels one should not do those things. In the story... He describes killing a man simply because he believes it's wrong to do so, but then confessing because he knows he shouldn't do that either. It's a haunting image, this idea of being controlled by something beyond you, something within that you yourself cannot control. The confession is as horrendous as the murder itself. It's a familiar course of action for a story for anyone who knows what is probably Poe's most famous short story, The Telltale Heart. That's where Poe lives, in between that uneasy state where you act strongly in ways that destroy others, but not in a kind of Leopold and Loeb or Raskolnikovian belief that you're superior to others, which you try to maintain as you assert your mastery over your accusers, your investigators, but in a kind of self-destructive state where you yourself never really wanted to murder a person, but you couldn't help it. And then you're not trying to fool your accusers, but you maybe think you're getting away with it until your own powerful impulses make you give yourself away. We'll hear a variation on this in The Black Cat as well. Here's Poe describing the imp of the perverse. Quote, We stand upon the brink of a precipice. We peer into the abyss. We grow sick and dizzy. Our first impulse is to shrink away from the danger. Unaccountably, we remain. It is but a thought, although a fearful one, and one which chills the very marrow of our bones with the fierceness of the delight of its horror. It is merely the idea of what would be our sensations during the sweeping precipitancy of a fall from such a height. For this very cause do we now the most vividly desire it. End quote. What is that? Alcoholism? What's he talking about there? The devil? Mankind's truest nature? A malfunction of the mind? 
Is it a lust for power, a taste for danger, a taste for death? Whatever it is, it's in us. And Poe gives us a window into what it's like when it takes over. Let's take one more break and then listen to The Black Cat. The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe For the most wild, yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive, in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black, and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion, which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. 
I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination 
in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. 
although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and, during this period, there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me, among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented, for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat, half stupefied, in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin, or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it, and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and, when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame, and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty, preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence, as from the breath of a pestilence." What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery, on the morning after I brought it home, that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed, in a high degree, that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait, and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures." With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair, or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, 
or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had, at length, assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline." It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. O mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death! And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast, whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast, to work out for me, for me a man, fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face, and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed, Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe, and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. 
she fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box, as if merchandise, with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and, having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while, with little trouble, I relaid the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept, even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a freeman. The monster, in terror, had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted. But, of course, nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. 
Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came, very unexpectedly, into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not a muscle. My heart beat calmly, as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls... Are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily, with a cane which I held in my hand, upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of my wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb. By a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of horror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. And that story by Mr. Edgar Allan Poe will be back soon with some more EAP. On Monday, we have a different kind of treat lined up for you. I hope you will all subscribe and tell all your friends. October is not a month to be missed here at the History of Literature podcast. We are a member of the Podglomerate Network, www.thepodglomerate.com. And LitHub Radio, you can find out more about us at facebook.com slash historyofliterature and 
historyofliterature.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.